What's up, my Impact Theory family? It's Tom Bilyeu, and I want to take a moment to express my heartfelt gratitude to you guys, our incredible listeners. Your support, your feedback, your unwavering commitment to your own growth inspires and drives us every day. And I want you guys to know how important you are to all of us here, especially me. And for those voracious listeners, you know who you are, I've got something really exciting to share with you. If you're truly dedicated to achieving greatness, check out the Extra Impact subscription channel exclusively on Apple Podcasts and Supercast. With the Extra Impact subscription, you'll get all new episodes delivered ad-free, exclusive access to bonus content, including keynote speeches, AMAs, weekly motivation, and previously unreleased episodes. And you'll also have subscriber-only access to five additional podcast playlists with hundreds of archived Impact Theory episodes curated into themes to help you streamline your transformation journey. So if you're ready to take your personal growth journey to the next level, head over to Apple Podcasts, Supercast, or check the links in the show notes and subscribe to the Extra Impact subscription. It's your key to unlocking the greatness within you. Thank you guys again so much for being a part of this incredible community. Remember, the world needs more people that have come alive, double down on your own improvement, and you will be shocked at how far you can go. All right, until next time, my friends, be legendary. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Pants Cast, brought to you by Lululemon, a show about all things pants. My guest is Matt James, former NCAA player and Lululemon ABC pant enthusiast. Hi, great to be here. Matt, tell us all about those ABC pants. The comfort? They're like the pants I put on when I don't want to wear pants. Versatility? You could wear these pants to a wedding, but you could also wear these to a cookout. And what about style? They're like, if casual and cool, had a baby. Well, it's clear why you're an ABC enthusiast. Pleasure having you and your pants on the show. Thanks for having us. Find the shockingly comfortable ABC pants at lululemon.com. Today's episode is with one of the most brilliant minds in the world of AI, Imad Mustak. Imad is the founder of Stability AI, the company that brought you Stable Diffusion, an open source AI model that's already being used by millions of people around the world. As such, he is closer to the realities of how disruptive AI is going to be than anyone I have talked with thus far. Imad's on a mission to get AI into the hands of everyone around the world, both to take advantage of its incredible power and, more distressingly, to ensure that those without AI are not effectively enslaved by those with it. That is how powerful AI is. Imad believes that only an even playing field will protect us. This is such an incredible time to be alive, and I really am very excited about AI, but I also think every one of us needs to face the coming changes head on. AI, like atomic energy before it, can be used to create or destroy, and it's going to be up to all of us to ensure that we chart our course well. As such, I plan to do many more interviews on the topic of AI in the hopes that both you and I can master a technology that I believe will be more disruptive to our way of life than anything ever in human history. Won't happen overnight, but we've only got one chance to get this right, to harness the power well and not get left behind. 
As always, if you want an ad-free version of this podcast with a bunch of extras like curated playlists and additional bonus content you won't find anywhere else, subscribe now on Apple Podcasts. Now, without further ado, I bring you Imad Mostak. I'm your host, Tom Bilyeu, and welcome to Impact Theory. How do we make sure it doesn't kill us? Or how does it make sure it doesn't enslave us? Or how does it make sure that it doesn't give us eternal suffering? And I realized this could be the real thing that unlocks humanity. AI is not going to replace humans. Humans with AI will replace humans that don't use AI. AI is thrilling. It's very exciting. But there is a non-zero chance that it poses an existential threat to the human race. So over the next three to five years, how disruptive do you think it will be? And what are people not prepared for? I think that's an excellent question. So, you know, the future is always hard to predict. And existential is a big word. Existential means no more humans. So I personally think the AI will be absolutely fine. As a base case, it'll be like that movie, Her, if it ever gets this artificial general intelligence. Like humans are kind of boring, goodbye and thanks for all the GPUs. But you could be wrong, because what we're doing is creating something that's more capable than us in narrow fields. And the question is, does that generalize and then become viral? We've seen an instance of COVID and that expansion. We've seen programs that can explode nuclear reactors like Stuxnet and others. Mm. What happens if you start combining these and you get a misalignment? So it's got a strange objective function. Our organizations already are like slow dumb AIs, you know, and like Germans are the most sensible people that we probably know. And yet they committed the Holocaust. And we see this over and over again, where organizations chew up people. What if an AI takes over an organization and then decides to do something disruptive or something terminal, such as creating a virus? We don't know about that, but that's at the extreme. When we look at impact, we have the more mundane. The more mundane is what happens to programmers when everyone becomes a programmer, just like photographers. You know, now you can take amazing pictures with your thing. What happens when Google's MedPalm 2 model now can outperform doctors in medical diagnosis, but also empathy, according to the latest paper in Nature? Mm. This is a fundamental reworking of information flows that's going to be massively disruptive and deflationary, even with what we have now, with no more advances as it becomes enterprise ready. And we have a continuum from that disruption to the productivity enhances to potential existential threat if we keep doing the models as we do now, which is we're not exactly sure how they work or their capabilities, but we keep building anyway. Now I want to get very specific about what the level of disruption is going to be. So when I look out at this and I think about, okay, we're creating something that is going to be smarter than we are, certainly in a narrow Mm -hmm. way, but possibly in a more general way. But even if it's just narrow, is there going to be any job function that isn't going to be at a minimum, augmented by AI. I think if you look at the employment share of industries, something like oil and gas has like 3%. It's mostly like building giant machines. Is that massively affected by this AI? At the edges, yes. Things like programming, where you're talking to computers, massively. I mean, now basic programming, the bar is raising fast, fast, fast. And so you've got everything from knowledge work to heavy industry. I think it affects just about everything, but some areas far more than others. Mm. The two areas that I think it will affect the most are probably healthcare and education. Neither of those are fit for purpose. We're in America, we know that, you know, but across the world, no one's really happy with their kids' schooling. And again, medical care, we all, if anything goes slightly wrong outside the norm, we all know how frustrating it is. We can finally have personalized education and healthcare at a fraction of the price. And the two biggest drivers of US inflation over the last decade 
education and healthcare. They make up about 80% of the increase. So that will be disruptive. And then, like I said, any type of knowledge work will be disruptive. How and we're not sure how knowledge fast. work because when, so my own self, uh, what we do is education. That's a big part of it, but yeah. also just content creation. And so when I look at the fact that we can already clone my voice, yeah. we can already create a Tom bot that will answer questions I have answered before in a very similar fashion to how I will answer them in our video game flow. We're already making 3d objects which so when we looked at, I don't know, two months ago, I thought, okay, this is still 12 to 18 months away, 45 days later, we're using it actively in yeah. our pipeline. Um, you've got text to video, which still a little awkward, but it's getting better insanely fast. We do all of our concept art now in, um, in AI. So we have, as a company that doesn't even have like a, an AI expert on board, we're just learning as we go. We're already deploying it like crazy. And when I look out, not even, you know, three years, when I look out a year, all of this stuff starts to very rapidly become a centralized point. And so we're already saying, I don't need to hire more people. I just need to make my people more efficient. Yeah. And so that, an entertainment company didn't even make the list that you just said. So there's a lot of people that I think are going to get disrupted by this. Uh, that may not be like the most extreme, but how far down do you see this trickling? Anything you can do in front of a computer, basically. Goes away or just becomes augmented? The bar lifts. The quality expectations are higher. AI is not going to replace humans. Humans with AI will replace humans that don't use AI. Because you can see that in your workflows right now. There was a paper by OpenAI where they estimated 15 to 50% of tasks get automated or improved. Mm. And so, you know, it affects people in different ways. You have a company where you've built a culture and you, again, you're building 3D assets. It becomes amazingly more efficient. We just released, uh, we contributed and collaborated on a 10 million 3D object data set. So by next year, you'll be generating 3D literally live. In a couple of years, you'll have HD movies. We can finally remake Game of Thrones season eight and other such travesties, you know? But the speed of this is something whereby it's happening in every media type at the same time, and it's easy to use. Web3 had some great ideas, but it tried to create a system outside the existing system, and all the money was made and lost at the interface. Mm. This is just so seamless because there's no friction. Your mum can use this technology. You can use this technology. You don't need to be an expert because it came and was trained from our content and our collective content, as it were. And now it's just easy to implement and use. So I think this is the big differentiator between this and other massive advances because they required infrastructure. The internet, there was the big lift up, you know? You had the consumption period of Web 2 when the cost of consumption dropped to zero. Now the cost of creation is dropping to zero and humans plus AI can massively outperform humans that don't. It's a forcing function, which means everyone has to use it. Mm -hmm. And this again is dual in that it can be disruptive, but it can also create massive value. Yeah, so I'll agree with that. I think that, so I guess, let me lay out my whole thesis for you and for everybody listening, because I want to take us through what I think is very real doom and gloom, and I'm not doing it to be a naysayer. I'm yeah. doing it because I think these are going to be the things we have to contend with. And if people go into this blindly, which I think they're doing right now, I think most people are burying their head in the sand. They're not paying attention to this, and they're going to wait until something really forces their hand, and by then it's too late. Yeah, the way that I put that is this is like COVID before Tom Hanks. Yes, very well said. Everyone's talking about this. Your mum's talking about this. But the Tom Hanks and the NBA made it real. Very true. 
And then we had a very poor response, which I have a feeling will be very similar to what we do now. Yeah. Okay, so here's how I see this going. I think right now for the next year, let's call it, uh, it's gonna be, you need to learn how to use it. This will be yeah. your window to get efficient. Companies probably aren't gonna start lopping people off yet. But I'll just say within my own company, so when I think about filmmaking, I went to film school, so I'm I'm very experienced in this flow. And even in a 3D world to create, um, a, let's say a short cinematic. So it's like a mini movie, but done digitally. I mean, you might have 35 people touch that thing from the creation of the assets through the moving of the camera, special effects. Mm -hmm. You might have 50 people touch that. And if that really does become text to output, now 50 people become one. Yeah, And so when you get a 50 to one ratio in certain areas, obviously it's not gonna be like that everywhere, but when you have certain areas that go from 50 to one, take programmers. I've heard you say, pro there will be no programmers because writing code is just a way to talk to a computer. And if you have AI that will interface with the computer for you, why would you ever need to write code? So that that's gonna steamroll through society. That is just gonna mow people over. So again, I'll give them 12 months, but even in my own company, if you're not actively trying to find a way to integrate it into your job function, I'm already looking at you sideways. A year from now, if you're not really good at either documenting how it is completely useless in your job function or mm. showing how you're using it, we will find somebody that can do it. I'll be shocked if a year from now we don't have a head of AI. So three years from now, I think this has created a crisis of meaning for a lot of people. And I don't know if you remember that, the whole learn to code yeah. uh, thing where it was like, hey, AI is gonna put drivers out of work. They're gonna be the first to go. And everybody was like, teach them how to code. Now, the way people responded to that always confused me because that was the right answer at the time. Now, knowing yeah. what I know about code replacing, not so much, but you have to go learn a new skill. There, There is no other option other than going on the dole, right? So you're either gonna learn something new or you're just gonna forfeit your career, basically. So I, what, what do you think about that? Do you agree that that is a very real thing that's going to sweep through? I, I do agree. I think that, again, we're not sure exactly how this is going to pan out, but probably the best mental model I figured out to think about this technology, it's like really talented grads that occasionally go a bit funny. They can draw, they can code, they can make 3D models. How would your business be affected if you could push a button and infinite grads came out? How would your personal life, your society? And this is why I think it's quite deflationary. The only question is, can we create new jobs to make up for that? And that's difficult. Because you Do said you think the, we can? I doubt we can, to be honest. I think this is an economic disruption that's far bigger than COVID. And the important thing here is COVID, you had the disruption, then everything bounced back. You're at record employment now and things like that. With this, there's a lot of never the same again. It's like you talk to your kid's school teacher. I can't set essays for homework anymore because of ChatGPT. Mm. And there's no way to stop that. So what is never the same again? And it's happening everywhere all at once. So this technology isn't just like, you know, there's a bar of entry where you needed to have a modem, you know, or you need the latest smartphone or something like that. It has an embedded base that it's seamlessly going into. Look how fast Microsoft implemented on the consumer side. But enterprise is not ready yet. It's like you at the iPhone 2G stage, you just got copy paste. And next year and the year after, you suddenly have the iPhone 10. You know, entire app stores get built because of the demand, because it's valuable what's happening here. Again, with the comparison to Web3, you had to bootstrap value because it wasn't valuable. 
and you hope the value would come, there's product market fit today. You're using it in your own company. And so this is one of my big concerns, and that's one of the reasons I decided to do open source, so I could stimulate growth. You know, because I think the only thing that can basically fill the gap is if we stimulate entrepreneurs to create brand new businesses, brand new jobs. Because I think demand will stay for a while. Demand for what? Demand for good things, good assets, with the way that money flows around the economy. So I was speaking at Cannes a few weeks ago, film festival, and you know I love movies. My first job, I was a movie reviewer. You know, really? Yeah, uh, British Independent Film Awards, Rain Dance Film Festival, hmm. other things. Lots I knew you were big into video game investing. I did not know that you were a film critic. That's I love I love stories. Mm-hmm. That's how I kind of understood people because my Asperger's and other things, uh, and so. I said to this, the video game industry has gone from 70 billion to 180 billion over the last decade. And the average Metacritic score has gone from 69% to 74%. The average movie is 6.4 on IMDb for the last decade. And the industry has gone from 40 billion to 50 billion. What happens when you can make better movies? I think the market expands. Because the limiting factor is awful movies, in my opinion. All right, let me run something by you. Yeah. Okay, so I have I have a really dark view of uh, not the next 12 months. So call it year two to year six. Yeah. So it'll be a, a three to four year sort of span where I think there there's gonna be emotional devastation and probably economic devastation. But even if the economic devastation doesn't happen because of productivity gains, I think the emotional devastation is going to be hard to come back from. And I think that as the emotional devastation sets in, the government is going to try to regulate to protect people's jobs. And there you're going to get like some real weirdness. I also think kids are going to have a junior year existential crisis of what do I do? How do I future-proof myself? What does the world going forward look like? I think there could be a massive loss of enthusiasm where a feeling of malaise settles over young people who are just like, why bother? I'm, I'm just going to get destroyed by AI. They're going to be able to do it better than me. Okay, so in the movie industry specifically, and this is indicative of a big problem that I think that we have coming, and I think the problems really stack individual and societal. Yeah. So at the individual level, the big problem you're going to have is this massive, uh, massive fractionation of right now, movies are even less now than they were when I was a kid. Movies were, there's only a few big movies for the year. Now they're going to niche down. If anybody can type out a movie in, you know, take them 20 minutes to write the prompt and then maybe a day to render, who knows how fast that's going to get. So now all of a sudden you can make a Hollywood quality film for an audience of one. And once you start doing that, now it's, what does that do to the industry? I think it, it erases it. I don't think the industry changes. I think it goes away. Yeah. I think there's a few kind of components here, right? So the cost of music consumption went to zero. You saw the Spotify model, yet you still have music stars. You've got even more crap music now <laughs> kind of coming and hitting Spotify and other things, but people rise to the top, you know, just like you see top podcasters, top other creators. I think that'll continue because people like common stories. Yes. Okay. So um, th- this is a very interesting idea. So let's stick with music for a second. Music is still hard to make. It's easier to make than it was before. It's also still hard to get people's attention. But music now is no longer a shared thing. So music is 
part of what led me to the conclusion that I'm at now, which is, man, as kids, it used to be you were either into the mainstream pop and there was, you know, seven to 10 hot bands at one time, or you were into the alternate pop and there was seven to 10 hot bands in that arena. And you you fit into one or the other bucket. There wasn't yeah. the infinite buckets now. You can find kids that are 25 and they listen to Frank Sinatra. Uh, and I'm just, I'm always tripped out by that. So they don't even have their own sort of shared lexicon of what music they're into. It's it's all spreading really wide. So it's really wide and an inch deep. Yeah, I think it's really wide and an inch deep. And you see the primary methods of monetization are tours, merchandising, community, effectively. You know, this is the interesting thing about NFTs when they took off and then bounced down and things like that. It was the quickest way to join a community, even if it did have bad incentive design. So in an era where you can create anything, something becomes important. What that something is, we have to find out now, right? Because again, I think it's some common stories, but I could be wrong. I think the deeper thing that you said was this crisis of meaning. Where is my path forward? What is an American dream? We're quite privileged, those probably listening to this and us on here. Most people don't really care about this technology. I think on a survey, 17% of people had heard about ChatGPT last month. How is that possible? Well, a third of the world still doesn't have internet. That's terrifying. But again, like, it is kind of very pretty. 1.5 million people still use AOL. You know, like, fair enough. So we kind of look at it, but there's something that can reverberate very, very quickly. And then, as you said, there's a sense of malaise because you're not sure what's happening. And again, the future becomes uncertain. And when the future is certain, things are stable, you decide based on risk. You do a probability estimation in your own head. This is the percentage of that, percentage of that, and then you optimize for that. When you do well uncertainty, you minimize for regret. Given these options, what am I going to regret least? And suddenly there are no options. Again, I'm at school programming and then programming is disrupted. What's it going to be? I'm not sure. And some people will throw themselves in and they'll tool themselves up and they'll become 10 times programmers. Other people won't and they'll be left behind. And so I think this is a real question that comes at a time when, again, being in America, I'm from Britain, but what is America? What does America stand for? What are the values? These are some things that I don't think America knows now. I think you've seen increased polarization from free consumption. And now as you get free creation and you'll be hearing all sorts of stuff, fake news and more, what are people really going to think? And I think, again, this is a real concern, as you said, from an individual to community to a societal level, because a lot of people don't have an anchor anymore. And that's really scary. So how do you think that we process through all of this? I'm not sure. I think that's why we needed to broaden the conversation. That's why I'm the only AIC here that signed both of the letters saying we need to take a pause and broaden this. Because as an example, you mentioned- and broaden this? Broaden the discussion get more people involved. We need to get more people involved. We need more points of view because this affects us all. It shouldn't just be a few tech CEOs that control this. And you shouldn't have to trust that we do the right thing because our models, we make them once, they go everywhere, <laughs> right? Again, the, what's the r naught of generative AI? It's off the charts, right? We've never seen anything like this. It incubates and then boom, out it comes mm. for good and for ill. The, you get the example of regulation. When we first started talking to regulators, they were like, how should we regulate it? Now it's a question of them asking us, how are we going to keep up if we regulate it? Because other jurisdictions won't. Mm -hmm. What do you say to that? I say you should still regulate it because it has some real dangers and harms and we have to work to mitigate those. You can't just have a laissez-faire approach to this because people will take it. And 
they won't be able to help themselves. I'll give you an example. Meta, Facebook, right? We all know the classic kind of stuff. They had a study where they had a hypothesis, 600 that if you see sadder things on your timeline, will it make you post sadder things? So they took 600,000 of their users and tried to make them sadder. And guess what? If you see sadder things, you post sadder things. What do you think is going to happen now that they have generative AI on threads and things like that? And they can hyper-target you, hyper-personalize it, and whack Scarlett Johansson's voice to tell you to buy soap. This is a dangerous thing, right? What happens to our kids, again, who are growing up, whereby they won't know what's going on and they have very malleable minds? And none of that is illegal, but I think it's an undesirable outcome, right? And then you've got the bad actors, and then you've got the politicians using this technology, and then it goes even crazier than that. So the answer is I'm not sure. Nobody's sure. But I think the only way that we can try and figure this out is to work together to make these issues known. Again, the existential stuff gets the headlines. We could all die. No one really understands what that means, but it can happen, right? Okay, there's a probability of that, but there's some real harms today and real opportunities today, and we have to focus on accentuating the opportunities and getting the harms out there and dealing with them. You guys know I am super selective when it comes to my diet, and I am extremely thoughtful about what I put into my body because you are literally what you eat. You are what you eat. I cannot stress it enough. Your cells are actually made of the things you eat. So make sure that the things you're eating are of the highest quality. And when it comes to high quality, a trustworthy source of animal-based protein, I cannot recommend ButcherBox highly enough. My wife, Lisa, and I go hard in the paint on ButcherBox Nearly half of my daily calories come from ButcherBox because they go above and beyond to source the highest quality meats and seafood with no added hormones or antibiotics ever. Every month, you can let ButcherBox curate a box of high-quality cuts for you, or you can customize your own box with the exact cuts you want, which is Lisa and I's favorite option. When you eat ButcherBox, you are giving your body the best possible building blocks to work with so you can reach your full potential. Go hard, guys. You've got to take care of yourself at a cellular level. So eat better this year with the best meat and seafood on the planet delivered directly to your door. ButcherBox is offering our listeners their choice of a weeknight meal essential, three pounds of chicken thighs, two pounds of ground beef, or one pound of premium steak tips for free in every order for a whole year. Plus, get $20 off your first order. Sign up today at butcherbox.com impact and use code impact to choose your free offer and get $20 off. This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. If you've got a lot of great ideas inside of you that could literally change the world, but you're keeping them locked away out of doubt or fear of failure, please listen up. Within you is a unique blend of ideas, dreams, and passions that no one else possesses, and it's time to take action on them and put them out into the world with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it simple and straightforward to create a website, engage with your audience, and sell your ideas with their all-in-one website platform. Easily customize Squarespace templates so your website stands out and makes an impact. And get insights into your website and email performance with built-in analytics so you can be constantly improving your site, sales, and strategies to reach your goals. And I hope those goals are aggressive. I'm telling you guys, you can take action today, not next week or next month or next quarter, today. 
and get your ideas out there with Squarespace. That's how you get into the physics of progress and get better. So head over right now to squarespace.com impact for a free 14-day trial and 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, that's squarespace.com impact. Please do not die with these ideas inside of you. Get out there, put them to the test. Go to squarespace.com slash impact. Whenever somebody asks me my tips for scaling a business, I always tell them focus on efficiency because if you don't, you're going to waste a lot of time and money spinning your wheels instead of making smart choices that will lead you to actually being able to grow. That's why I recommend you check out Shopify, which has everything you need to efficiently grow your business and take it to the next level. Every time I talk about Shopify, I'm so jealous that you guys have this all-in-one ready solution at your fingertips. It is so helpful. Shopify is a global commerce platform that makes it easy to sell online and in person at any and every stage of your business. Literally, wherever, whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered, just like the millions of businesses that rely on them every day. And Shopify's award-winning customer support is there to help you every step of the way. Plus, you get access to Shopify Magic, the AI-powered tool that will save you so much time and give you a huge leg up in growing your business. And with Shopify's super-efficient checkout process, which performs 36% better than competitors, you are primed for more sales just by using Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash impact, all lowercase. Go to Shopify dot com slash impact right now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash impact yeah and i i definitely want to spend a very extended period of this talk talking about the opportunity and how we capitalize on that so anybody that's with us now trust me we are going to get to that but uh, I think we're we're just beginning to scratch the surface of how this goes wrong, and I really want to um, map out sort of where you think the edges of this are, so that then I can hopefully get a sense of what you think the regulatory framework would be. But let me give you one idea that somebody posted today on Twitter, and it really hit me that e- people are even thinking about the problem in the wrong way. So uh, there was an artist, and he was looking at some post about AI, and he replied sort of angrily that, oh, well, people don't even understand. Sure, there's going to be a ton of like um, instantly generated crap, but it's all going to be bad because there's still a very small number of people that have good ideas. And my response was, if you think that ideas are safe, you're really going to get caught Mm -hmm. off guard. So going back to the idea of what are people unprepared for, I think they are unprepared for what you were just talking about, where the AI, so the human mind is a prediction machine. It is constantly trying to figure out what what does this next movement of my foot equate to? Am I going to stay up, stay on balance? Uh, That rustling in the bush, is it a tiger? What is it? If I put money in my 401k, am I going to be able to retire? You're constantly predicting the future, constantly. And Whenever that prediction engine breaks down, there's going to be a tremendous amount of anxiety and also I think a pretty big unknown in terms of how it's going to impact society. So right now we have a, we're building something that is incredibly good at recognizing the patterns that we kick off. So we are optimized to identify patterns and move accordingly. And I would say people that are hyper-intelligent are people that they notice patterns faster, more subtle patterns. And they understand their implications and how to make sense of them. Now we're creating something that's already proven 
to be so much better at pattern recognition than we are, just take art. So for people that don't understand how the art is created, it looks at a field of noise. Here are all the possible things that these could be in any of these pixels. And from that field of possibilities, it pulls forth the most likely placement of pixels and colors based on what you type. That's insane. So that level of pattern recognition as evidenced by the art that it can generate is is truly mind-blowing. So this guy's saying, okay, hey, at least ideas will be the last bastion and you'll never be able to get rid of me, the artist, because I'm the one with taste, I'm the one with good ideas. Not realizing, no, 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 what AI is, is a pattern recognition machine. It will recognize the greatest ideas that have ever been had, what they have in common, and will be able to predict the next great idea along that thing. It doesn't even have to just regurgitate what it's already seen. It can like figure out what that sequence is and what that next part of the sequence could be. And on top of that, it's doing that with humans. So AI will get, AI is already extraordinarily good. This is why people think their phone's recording them when it serves an ad. Oftentimes, Target using their AI knows that you're pregnant before you do if you're a woman because they know what to pick up on. So AI is going to get extremely good at understanding us at an individual level, serving us up exactly what we want right in that moment. And that gets dystopian really fast. Really fast. I mean, again, when you combine it with the social credit score, as you've seen in kind of China and other things, you gamify life and you have a system of complete social control, a panopticon, as it were. The pattern recognition was the missing bit whereby you had a level of pattern recognition so for taste what do you have tiktok shine hundred billion dollar companies based on old school algorithms before we even got to generative ai which as you said it can take images out of noise stable diffusion you know the model that we collaborated on now that we lead we took a hundred thousand gigabytes of images and the output was a two gigabyte file that acts as a filter words go in images come out because why why is that discrepancy in size meaningful 50,000 to one compression is not WinZip. If you remember Silicon Valley on HBO, Mm. it's way beyond that they managed there in terms of compression. It's unheard of compression. Is it compression or is it something completely different? Something different. different. It's intelligence. It's learning the principles. How much information do you see? And then you learn the principles and you then spot the tiger in the bush. You learn what's next. Literally GPT and these language models, they predict the next word. That's all they do. They pay attention, they predict the next word. And that was the missing part to intelligence that now is there. We've had the first studies now come out that show that the language models score higher in creativity than people. Woof. And again, think about TikTok, think about Shine, think about how those old school algorithms are already targeting you. Facebook needs 17 data points to know you better than your friend. As he said, Target knows you're pregnant before. And that was old school, now it's even better. And you think about where that leads to as well. It's kind of crazy because it can be more creative than you, but are people creative? One of the things I like to say in my speeches, I've just been learning to do, is like, are you creative? How many of you in the audience are creative? Three to 5% put up their hands, maybe 10 to 20% if I'm like in a movie studio, movie filmmaker kind of milieu. And I say, how many of you believe that every kid is creative and everyone puts up their hand? And then I ask, how many of you were kids once? And 90, 95% put up their hands. So I know who the cyborgs in the audience come from the future to get me are. I make a note of that for future. Something happens where we're told we're not creative. And obviously some people are more creative than others, can tell better stories than others. But the reality is that the average level of 
barrier to this has dropped for every human. But much of what we consider art, or much of which we consider media, shall we say, already is by the numbers. I was at a Blackpink concert last weekend. You know, took my daughter. Don't you dare say something bad about Blackpink. And they are awesome. You know, it was an awesome manufactured experience. It was I, premium mediocre is how I kind of say these premium things. Premium mediocre? Premium mediocre. That's hilarious. Well, but it's, accurate. It's yeah, nice. I'll but again, it's massively manufactured. It's, it's entertaining, right? And so much of media is already that. Like true art, <laughs> true artists, you know, that's something different. Like, is it the medium itself and the aestheticness of it? Well, AI can make something more aesthetic than anything can understand the nature of aesthetic like how do you make an image more aesthetic you say make it more aesthetic <laughs> just like if you use a gpt4 you can say make this punchier make this punchier make this punchier you know you can have a letter and then you say i'm firing this person and i want to make them feel okay about it and then it will redraft it in those terms or you can say i want to drive the knife in but not in an appropriate way and it'll do that and we can literally anyone on this call can kind of listen to this can try that now so i think this is just as you said, the wrong thing people are thinking about, the wrong model people are thinking about as well. And that's why I always go back to this concept of the really talented grad. Because these models are a couple of gigabytes big. Again, stable diffusion, the image model is two gigabytes and can generate any image of anything. We'll get that down to 200 megabytes. GPT-4 is probably 100 to 200 gigabytes. And it can pass the bar exam, it can go to freaking Stanford, it can do whatever. That's, crazy. That's insane because it's not compression, like you said. There isn't a copy of all the data in there. Mm. It's figured out the essentialization of these points and it's replicable. This is the thing. To clone Google or Meta, you need to have a gigantic data center. And then much of the energy is in the processing to target you ads. With these, we take giant supercomputers and we pre-process and package the information. So the output is this knowledge filter that something goes in and something comes out. A prompt goes in and an output comes out. That's something quite different that I don't think people appreciate. And again, this is why I use the grad example. Push a button and those weights, the file, the model, gets replicated to 10, 100, a dozen, a million. Mm. And what happens when rather than dealing with them one-to-one, -one, you have a thousand of them. So in a year, I wanna, we do. I want to really understand what you're saying about the grad thing. So when you say that, you say it in a way that's kind of funny or cheeky. But what you mean is a really smart person is now present in that role. We have figured out how to make humans scale. That is what fundamentally. Intelligent humans scale. Yeah, who can listen to instructions. So you look at something like Claude 2 by Anthropic. You have something, the input is a prompt when you type into GPT-4 or Stable Diffusion or Mid-Journey or something like that. Claude, Anthropic's model, can take 100,000 tokens. It can take a prompt that's like 60,000 words, which is a whole book. Jesus. Yeah. You can give it like the whole of Ulysses and the whole of, I don't know, the Odyssey by Homer, and you can say combine these to make another book. And it will do it and it will work. It can follow instructions really well. Occasionally they hallucinate, but even hallucination is a misnomer because when you compress that much knowledge, like GPT-4 is probably 10 trillion words, 10 trillion, 10,000 billion words in a hundred gigabyte file. It's something else. And so I use the word grad because I want to make it relatable, but it is literally like 
Imagine if you had a grad in the Philippines, you know, and they're doing good work and they're following instructions well. That's great. But what if you had a hundred of them looking after each other's work and double checking? Meta had a paper called Cicero where they took eight language models and got them to check each other's work, outperformed humans in the game of diplomacy the first time ever. In a year when we have this, before it, you'll just say, I want you to go and look at everything Emad said for the last year and figure out the stupidest stuff he said. So, you know, if I can avoid it. And the smartest, most interesting stuff, according to what I know, and all of my podcasts to give answers, to give questions that the audience will really like based on my ratings Mm. and based on what people look at through the YouTube videos and things like that and what they're most interested in. And it will just happen automatically. How many graduates does that take you to do? And then what happens when they stop being graduates and you can actually train them up to be like, you know, experienced members of the team? How long will that take? A couple of years. This Uh, is why this is terrifying to me. So I, I am a very optimistic person. And again, I promise we are getting to how you take advantage of this disruption, but I don't like to face a problem naively. I want to face it as head on as possible so that I know my solutions are real. And when when I look at this from my own perspective of, okay, I'm trying to, I'm trying to build a media company, which right about now is a very terrifying time to do that. Yeah. And I'm thinking about, okay, it's, it's very optimistic when I look at, oh my gosh, I, as the founder of this company, I get access to all these grads, as you're calling it, this just absolute proliferation of very intelligent sort of people that I can now put to work in my company. Mm. The problem is I'm now competing against other people that have the same thing. And you you get in this ever escalating arms race where there there is a real chance for fatigue. And so I think what ends up happening and we were talking before we started rolling, it's it is very important that people understand the following thing. I think this is just a truth, but people certainly need to understand I believe it. This is a core belief that that drives me that we, you get to a point where you need to know, okay, I matter, I'm doing this thing and that's how I'm contributing to the world. And I need to be in there working hard, accomplishing, getting better, moving towards something. And if I'm not moving towards that thing, then I'm going to have a profound sense of disease. And if I'm not making that progress, then I'm really going to fatigue out on something. And so if people are just treading water because they're trying to build something and they're competing against somebody else that has these 10,000 things and it's just constantly changing and I can't predict the future anymore and I don't feel like I'm making progress, I'm just going to back off. Like some part of me is just going to be like, ah, what am I doing all this for? What am I doing? Yeah. I mean, it's like the outsource revolution, right? Where so many jobs were outsourced and a lot of people felt that way. Like, you know, we'll outsource you to China, we'll outsource you to India, we'll outsource you wherever. And again, it just happens that there's a computer on the other side of that versus an Indian or a Chinese person. And so we've got kind of repetition of that, but at ridiculous scale affecting almost every single industry that's intermediated by a computer. And so this will cause, as you said, a crisis of confidence to many, and it impacts white collar workers, not blue collar workers. It flips, I think, the global order to a degree as well, because here in the West, we've maxed out our credit cards. We're going into deflation, I think coming off high inflation and all of a sudden we can't print our way out because we just printed the last of our money for covid whereas in the global south what you have is this technology can cause them to leapfrog just like they leapfrog leapfrog to mobile missing pc completely to intelligence augmentation 
Why can't we print more money? Well, because kind of we're just coming up to a limit of what's literally mathematically possible, given the debt to GDP ratios and others. We can continue, but it's but kind if, of pushing. If in. you're deflating, then because so here's my layman's understanding, but this is something yeah. I've really looked at. So I'm a pretty educated layperson at this point. Uh, inflation is largely, some people will say entirely, but I'll say largely a function of how much money you're printing. For people that are new to the idea of printing money, it's government approved counterfeit. So the <laughs> yeah, government yes. is allowed to print as much money as they want, but they're literally just making it out of thin air. They're adding zeros and ones to a database somewhere and money finds its way into the system beyond the scope of this conversation. But they, there is no theoretical limit to how much they can print. Now, where what you run into problems is the hyperinflation of the currency. But if you're saying it's a deflating currency, which actually makes sense to me given what we're talking about, then printing seems to make a lot of sense, seems to buy me more room. Eventually. So what's going to happen is that you've got a decrease in inflation now because of base effects. I'm sorry for going into a bit of macroeconomics. Yeah, and then you'll probably have a bounce back next year because you've still got a lot of inflationary pressure. And then the collapse occurs. Why? Because that's when the job losses start hissing. And the question is, can we create enough on the other side? We've got to have a productivity boom from companies. And do you think the job losses are coming from uh, AI or some other force? From AI. And from other forces as well. Again, you know, what we've had is a sugar rush post-COVID, a good strong economy as all of the excess savings go back in. Because if you look at excess savings, people saved up a lot. And that's almost now depleted. By the end of the year, the excess savings will be depleted. Hmm. You've got some hangover effects from inflation. Then you move into deflation the year after. And then it's a political hot potato around printing more. Because this isn't, again, like COVID. Because what happens is the job losses just start and they just keep going. It's not like you had a 2008 crash or you had a COVID where everyone's kind of suddenly going. It's like, it's a bit like boiling a frog, you know, or a lobster. It's just going to start and then it's going to accelerate. And then it's going to be like, at what point do you take the big fiscal action? It takes a few quarters of the economy actually shifting. So this is all a lot of hypotheticals, right? Mm. But the bottom line, I think, is this. The nature of US society, Western society will change. I think the biggest adopters and fastest adopters of this will be the global south because it allows them to create value. It allows them to financialize. It allows them to take a big leap forward. And so I think that's got some huge implications geopolitically and others, but a lot of upside as well, because I think you can solve a lot of the world's problems with this. But it's so messy, because fundamentally it comes down to what you said. As humans, we're trying to figure out what comes next. Mm. And we suddenly have a computer that can do that even better. As humans, we're storytellers. We're made up of the stories that make us up. You're a filmmaker, you know, I was a film reviewer, all these kinds of things. This can tell better stories. And that has such a big effect on our societies that none of us can really wrap our heads around it. Like, I've got a background in economics, management, a whole bunch of different things. I can't wrap my head around it. And so we're just going to have to see how it goes and then try to mitigate. But nobody's got answers to this. And in fact, as you said, most of the people aren't asking the right questions. Yeah, you have said that uh, the shit show happens next year. I have a feeling that what you were just talking about is what you mean by the shit show, that we go deflationary. Towards the end of the year, yeah. So Towards the end of 2024? Yeah, we've got like a burst of productivity enhancement, and then you start seeing job losses, you start seeing a question of meaning. You've got the US election next year. My God, that's going to be awful. Yep, terrible fucking timing. Well, I mean, 
you know, what you'll have is the week before the election, fake videos appearing everywhere, and they'll say the same things, you know, so-and-so has a brain infection or something like that. And they'll be identified as false, but it doesn't matter. Mm. It still discourages people from polling. But then what do elections look like by 2028 when this technology is in every single pollster's hands? Yeah, that's where we get into the blockchain. We'll save that for a little bit down the road. Yeah. Okay, so now I feel like we're we're getting close to the problem set being on the table. There's one more thing that I I think it's important to put on the table, which is I don't think that the amorphous thing that is society as the world turns, history, the grand arc history, however you want to think about the the real long timelines. So even if the long arc of history bends towards improvement, which I think it does and yeah. think it still will, I don't think it cares at all for any one period of time. And that unimaginable amounts of human suffering happen routinely throughout our history. And I have deep concerns that if we are not incredibly thoughtful, uh, that this will be one of those moments. And I look at what's going on in France right now. I think it's dying down. I can't tell if it's dying down or the coverage is dying down. Hopefully it's actually dying down. Uh, But France was like really having some struggles. And if something like that pops off over, uh, not in any way, shape or form to make light of what happened, but it isn't mass joblessness, which is going to have a far wider impact what happens when you have that and it's global? I mean, I think this is the thing. It's every government has, every education minister in the world has to grapple with, why can't I set my set kids' essays homework again? Have we ever seen anything like that before so quickly? Mm. I don't think we have. And so you could see this literally parallelized around the world. Or not. We're not sure what really kicks off some of these things. Like right now, we've got the Screen Actors Guild kind of protesting. Today, we just had a couple of actors leave Oppenheimer. Part of that's monetary, but already you're seeing AI fears, like front and center. You wouldn't even have thought it six months ago. What's it going to be like in a year when you can generate, or two, when you can generate whole movies? And then just describe how you want it done, and it's Hollywood level. It's really difficult for governments to react to this, to adapt to this, when, like in the US here, we're still reacting to Section 230 on the internet. They're just getting to go up to the internet, and all of a sudden AI just comes and sideswipes things, right? And I think, again, the only way to do this is if you can create brand new jobs quicker than anything. Um, this is one of the reasons, again, like I said, we focus on open source. It's why you need to have things like regulatory sandboxes so that you can experiment and try and you need to stoke innovation because you don't you'll never get an innovation phase like this either i think this is a step change and a regime change in the way that society operates because we're originally an oral species then we figured out how to write then we had the gutenberg press and it took all these words but it took them down into black and white it made society quite black and white (laughs) because it couldn't capture context whereas these models can capture context they can capture principles they can capture more so again, you know, you're writing this down. You won't have to in a year or two. It'll just be automatically added to your memex, to your knowledge base, right? Also, the AI will just be attached to my head. It will read the brainwave patterns and know that that's what I need to remember. And that sounds crazy, but like we had MindViz, a paper that we kind of published from our MedArc division, whereby you looked at a picture of a mug, took an fMRI, and then it reconstructed it using our image model. Yeah. 
That right. doesn't sound crazy to me at all. Th this is what I'm saying, Imad. People do, they're not prepared for what's coming. They are not prepared for this level of change and they really aren't prepared for the rate of change. And it isn't just like an arc like that. It's lots of S-curves all at once, all around the world, where every single company is now thinking, what's my generative AI strategy yes. for when it pops off? Correct. And every government's thinking, how can I stay competitive? And this is why I said, like, it's a race condition where everyone is trying to do the same thing or similar things and you can't be left behind. You can't not participate. And it's been a very long time since we've seen that. And there's a world before this technology and a world after this technology. Like, I don't think, again, you know, I've got um, two kids. What does the world look like in five years, let alone 10 years? I have no idea. Mm. And I'm in the middle of this. Because it's just impossible to see. The smartest people that I know, they used to be able to see years in advance. They can't see more than a year or two. And this sounds, again, very apocalyptic. But then, like I said, we're going to get to the good fit <laughs> in a second. Mm. In every crisis, there is opportunity. Our society is broken as it stands already. And I think this is a chance to reshape it for the better and solve a lot of the biggest problems that we've been facing because of our slow, dumb AIs because of our organizations and institutions that we are all frustrated with. And I think this is a big upgrade from it. The example I had to give is there's the amazing poem by Ginsberg Howell about Moloch, this Carthaginian demon of disorder. I think where that came in was text because we had to essentialize everything down and put people into boxes because you couldn't have systems to understand the context. You can't have personalized education or personalized healthcare because you couldn't scale humans. There weren't enough talented humans until now. And so I think that is the incredibly dangerous part because all of a sudden from economic pressures, you flood the market. And it's the incredibly motivating part whereby there's a shortage of talent for everything that's important and there isn't anymore. But then the nature of talent for jobs and things will transform. Mm. And I think the economic abundance that's created on that, that's the flip side of this, as well as the ability to fix our broken systems. Mm. All right, I'm going to give you my timeline. Mm -hmm. I think the next year is going to be uh, a lot of fun for people that embrace it. It'll be a period of time where some people can ignore it and they probably won't yeah, really notice. They yeah. won't realize how fast things are changing. Although follow me on Twitter. I, uh, I post routinely like, hey, here's something I didn't think that would happen for 18 months. And we're now 45 days later, we're using it. Uh, things are really, really moving faster. But for the next year, I think people will be able to ignore it and they won't realize that it's growing with such steam and ferocity. Uh, then year two to six, I think it, I think that there is going to be pockets of extreme suffering. And I think uh, deaths of despair are going to skyrocket. Mm -hmm. And I hope it's not a the world is burning riots kind of thing. It'll probably be more quiet and insidious than that. Uh, but I really think that we're going to lose people on the upper and lower ends. I think people that are old are going to just completely check out and say, I can't keep up. I'm too old. I don't want to learn this new stuff. I think people that are young, it's the only thing they know is change so fast that they can't see around the corner. I think that will be absolutely terrifying to them. And they're going to retreat into the levels of entertainment, sex bots, um, oh, AI friends yeah. <laughs> that are more loving and kind than their other friends. And they, it will be a collapsing inward. 
Now, as somebody who is prone to collapsing inward, um, the biggest thing that's held me back as an entrepreneur is that I like being alone with my own thoughts. Yeah. And that if you then layer anxiety on top of that, and then you give me an AI that's actually better to me than anybody in my real life has ever been. And then you give me maybe some drugs. I will truly collapse in under my own weight. Not me personally, I have defenses, but I'm saying like that personality type is really gonna struggle. So I think right there, you sort of, you're gonna lose a generation if I may be so bold uh, on the upper and lower ends. Then either on the 10 to 20 year time horizon, and I leave it that long because look, we're any prediction that you make with a timeline is guaranteed to be wrong. Course, so I'll try yeah. to give myself at least yeah. a little bit of buffer. And I know that everything I'm saying, probably directionally correct, timeline probably way off. Yeah. But 10 to 20 years, my rough estimate, that's where we're either in Terminator and we're running from radioactive rubble to radioactive rubble fighting the machines, uh, or it it really is a utopia. And I think that there is a real shot that we get to the closest things that humans are going to get to, to a utopia where things are so plentiful. Yeah. Everything we want is available. We reorient our human psyche, not to um, acquisition, but rather emotional contribution. And we'll paint that picture more as we go down. But that that's sort of my rough thing. Yeah. I think these are crazy timelines. Like, not because I disagree with them, because the fact is that they're crazy. You have a year of incubation, then you have contagion, and then you've got a stock thing. I don't think we'll be chased by robots. They won't need to chase us. They're far more efficient than that, right? That's sad, but true. (laughs) I think the basically the two directions we have are utopia and human flourishing and a dystopia where we're all happy. A dystopia where we're all happy, meaning we are manipulating our neurochemistry. 1984. You know, like... You're always happy. You've got so many. 1984? Brave New World. Brave brave New World. 1984? Not 1984. Brave New World. Sorry. Brave New World. I mean, Soma Drip. Feeling good. You got Soma Drip. You're feeling good. Like, look, you had Replica. Um, Familiar with that? Yeah. Tell me about the Valentine's Day Massacre, though. I didn't know about that. Yeah, exactly. The Valentine's Day Massacre. So, you know, that's how I kind of call it. So, Replica was a mental health chatbot. Then they realized you could charge $300 a year for erotic role play. And that had the, to be internally a rough transition. Hey, guys, I know we founded the company on mental health, but... but you know, you can ask them. Um, 14th of April, 2023, they turn it off. Why? I think Apple just told them you can't have this on the App Store. Interesting. Uh, so it was either remove the sex bot part or, or go yeah. off the... And then 68,000 people join the Reddit and they're like, why did you lobotomize my girlfriend? That's a lot of people to be using it. I downloaded that at Christmas, yeah. not realizing what it was. And I was like, ooh, a chatbot. Let me yeah. try this thing. Uh, I didn't get into the weird stuff. It, I don't know, didn't do it. It was the well. old technology, though. This is the thing. Now, like, again, MedPalm 2, the Google medical model. MedPalm 2. It's Google's medical model. It scores higher than humans in clinical diagnosis and empathy. That's crazy. Right? They That's, just, th- this is one of those statements that you say people need to be shocked. Yeah. That that a computer makes people feel more comfortable. Yeah, it's in nature. They just published the paper that included that. And again, it's only going to get better. What if you have a voice that you add to it that really understands you and it's, you know, so empathetic and things like that. Do you ever see that Washington Post chart of uh, 
Males under the age of 30 in America who've not had a sexual partner by the age of 30. Mm-hmm. It was 8% in uh, 2008. Then it went up to 27% in 2018 or something like that a couple of years ago. It's a straight line. It's literally a straight line. This is kind of what you're talking about. Like, well, I was what talk- happened? I think people need to understand. because I think it's the iPhone and Pornhub, probably correct. a combination of those two. Uh, you, you put a computer in the hands of young men and let them see naked females more in a single session than a hundred years ago they would have seen in their entire lives it these are not small changes and they have huge neurological implications especially in the years of brain development yeah and this is why it's so important to shield our kids at this point because the influence is going to be insane like i was having a discussion with a very prominent technologist and he's like yeah i'm pretty sure that my child's first crush is going to be an ai guaranteed guaranteed for most people it was actors so we're already prone to you'll have your unattainable distant thing now it's in your pocket it's in your pocket it's always with you it's always kind of there you again as you said a large part of society like to draw in on itself as a result of that and that is a bit dangerous do they then go out into the streets? Are you seeing a Butlerian jihad kind of thing like in Dune? I don't Larry know. Butlerian jihad? In Dune, there was this concept of the Butlerian jihad where as you had autonomous AIs. Butlerian. Butlerian, yeah. Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They rose up against them and said, no more AI agents. That's right. The book opens with that, right? Yes. That you can never again make a human-like Robot. AI, something yeah. like that. Again, this is kind of a thing, extension of the Luddism kind of thing. But most people will be happy with their AIs. Mm. Because their AIs actually listen to them. I use GPT-4 as a therapist. I've got a therapist too, because this is hard. Why? Because it never judges me unless I tell it to judge me. Hmm. You tell it to judge you sometimes? Sometimes. Sometimes you're like... Do you really? Yeah. I mean, like, come on. Like, come on. Give me some positive, constructive feedback. And it will listen and give positive, constructive feedback. Did you give it a personality? Did you have to, like, imagine you're a therapist that's like... Yes, you give it the instructions and it just adapts. And then you give it the things. You opt out with GDPR from it, training the model further, because otherwise the model would be even weirder listening to my complaining. And it will come back to you with whatever, and soon it will be able to talk. Hmm. And it will have full vocal control. And these models will proliferate at that level because you're not stopping. The models are just going to get better and better and better. So you've got this crisis but maybe it'll be insulated but i think again if you look forward like after the incubation and the contagion and the spread kind of phase there are only two paths here complete control by existing structures and star trek utopia you know i think those are the two options that we have because organizations look at this technology and they're like this is really cool We can optimize our objective functions to sell more ads or to control the people and kind of keep them going. You know, do you really trust politicians with this technology? No, even if it is an arms race. Because again, you won't know what's going on because do you have the defenses to defend against what's coming? Personally, for your kids, for this, for everything. We've already had the social media age. It wasn't really social, much of the media, right? This is something new that's coming now where you can't tell this from a human except for the fact it's better, it's more convincing. And you can use that to create a human colossus and solve all the problems of the world, and we all come together. Or you can use that to get everyone into their basements, you know, and cut off from the world. Mm. 
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. All right, I want to paint a, a very beautiful story for people and I want them to understand Look, I don't think this is a completely controllable thing, but uh, you said earlier that there's opportunity in any crisis. And I will say that the biggest opportunities come in moments of disruption. Yep. And the reason I want to lay out the problem set is because I really believe that certainly at the individual level, if you're thoughtful enough, you're, you are going to be able to navigate your way through this. So dear listener or watcher, if you're here on YouTube, I'm telling you right now, if you're thoughtful enough, you will get through this. And- you have a chance to get through this better than when you started, but you have to be aware of what the dangers are. People have to to really lay things out before them, look at them so they know, okay, this is how I'm going to isolate myself from this potential problem. This is how I'm going to avoid this. This is how I'm going to leverage that. Okay. Your story is one of the most incredible stories of how one uses AI. You have both a personal example and then obviously as the founder of Stability AI, is obviously incredible. Uh but talk to me about your son, because this is, and this was when AI was a lot less useful than it is now, and it was still life-changing. Yeah, so 12 years ago, my son was diagnosed with autism when he was two years old. You know, it's very, very severe. Um, scratching our wall, turning his fingernails bled. And Jesus. they said, there's no cure, there's no treatment. We don't really know what causes it. Anyone on this call kind of list on this listening knows that's kind of the case. So I was a hedge fund manager at the time. I was lucky enough to kind of, be one, uh, quite young. And I was like, well, I've got to do something about it. So I switched to advising hedge funds and then building a little AI team and doing AI with old school AI, natural language processing to analyze all the autism literature and what could possibly be a cause. Now, is this scientific? No, it's an end of one thing a father does for his son. You know, we'll be publishing some of the results of it soon, but it focused down on GABA goose mate balance in the brain. When you pop a Valium, your GABA goes up, you chill out. When you got a glutamate spike, that's when you can't focus and your legs tapping all the time. And there are multiple things that cause it, but a lot of kids with ASD seem to have that. And there are some papers around that, etc. Because how could you focus if you're in that condition all the time? So you can't learn to speak, you can't do that. So it was, how do we reduce this through drug repurposing, built a knowledge graph-based system to do that and figure out which drugs could potentially help reduce the glutamate, help increase the GABA. How are you using AI for this? So this was kind of the mass natural language processing, looking at all the literature. Because the same treatment would make 30% of kids better and 30% of kids worse. And so I was trying to figure out, the outcome was the same, a cold is caused by lots of different things. Mm. But the thing that caused it could be so different. And so conventional medicine and medication kind of failed that. So I worked with neurologists, worked with other psychiatrists and others, and tried different medical combinations of off prescription drugs and other things to try and make his brain calmer. So then he could use applied behavioral analysis and others to reconstitute speech. And, you know, you ended up going to mainstream school. I think it worked. Um, I told people about it and they're like, you're not a doctor. And I was like, there's a big, that was the response. Well, yeah. I mean, look, with anyone who's listening to this, like, am I saying I have a cure for autism? No, I'm saying I'm a dad who tried my best and I saw results, but in order for something to become medicine, 
you actually have to go through a proper process. And so for me, that was building language models. That was making everything in the right structure. And then we can organize the world's autism literature, making it accessible and useful. Any parent or anyone, you may have someone in your family that has a neurological condition, Alzheimer's, this, this. So many people around the world have the same problems. Wouldn't it be wonderful if they could just find what the latest knowledge is and also the things that could work and have a holistic approach to this? And until we have this technology, you can never get there, which is one of the main drives for me to want to build this technology mm. and do it in a transparent order. But you shouldn't have to trust me and what I say about this. Because again, my journey as a parent is the same as anyone who's got a child with ASD. It's the same as anyone who has a family member that gets multiple sclerosis or cancer. Our systems are not good enough right now to bring us the information we need unless we find an amazing doctor and an amazing group. But now with MedPalm, with our own models, with other things, we can finally be at that point where we're never lost, where we can say what could work. So an example is clonazepam. It's prescribed at a 1,000 microgram dose for anxiety. At a 5 microgram dose, my son could sing because it potentiated... And he was nonverbal. He was nonverbal. And at 20 micrograms, it stops working. It's $6 a year intervention. Hmm. Because this is the way that like um, neurotransmitters work. So like when you pop a nitol and antihistamine to go to sleep, right? What it does is it floods a whole bunch of your neurotransmitters, including the H1 neurotransmitter. And that's the one that makes you sleepy. But then other ones give you dry mouth and other things. Something like Remeron in a microdose just triggers H1. And it'll knock you out without any side effects. Hmm. But it's just incredibly cheap, you know? Understanding things like neurotransmitters is not something that most of us ever have to do, unless you're super hyper-focused on it for years, because I was like, I need to figure out my son's neurotransmitters. I'm talking to all the top doctors, and I'm lucky because I have access to them. What do I do now? So that's when I realized that, you know, this AI was a big thing. And actually, one of the really interesting things is, why couldn't he talk? It's because he had too much noise in his brain. So you've got cup. A cup can mean a cup, or it can mean cup your hands, or cup your ears, or world cup. He couldn't form those connections because his noise was too, no, brain was too noisy. And so he did applied behavioral analysis, which is teaching you this is a cup, this is a cup, this is a cup with gamification to reconstruct those after his brain calmed down. It's actually very similar to this generation of AI. We described earlier how it learned principles. It's called a latent space of meaning. So that point and dot, that pixel, becomes a cup because it understands the principle of cuppiness. Mm. So when you type in World Cup or cup your ears, it gives you dramatically different images. Similarly, the language models do the same. Again, it pays attention to what's important. Attention is all you need was the original paper. And again, forms this latent space of the meaning of cup within the sentence. So when it says cup, it's like, well, this is going to be a World Cup, or this is going to be that. But not actively. Again, it's just a bunch of ones and zeros, a single file. And so I think that's why all this new generative AI really resonated with me. And I realized this could be the real thing that unlocks humanity or controls them forever, one of the two. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's kind of some of the personal story behind this. Because again, like, I don't have a cure for autism. I worked as well as I can with my son with the technology at hand. Mm. However, I think that with the building blocks we're building now, us and others, there's the potential to have personalized care and knowledge for everyone who's dealing with ASD for everyone who's dealing with multiple sclerosis or any of these other conditions, where they say there's no cure because our medical system is treats people as a gerdic. And what does a gerdic and a gerdicity mean? It means a thousand tosses of the coin, the same as a thousand coins tossed at once. That's why everyone gets 500 milligrams of paracetamol. 
It's why a lot of people have a cytochrome P450 uh, abnormality kind of mutation in their liver. It means you process codeine into morphine quicker or fentanyl into death. Yet we don't do a basic genetic test on that because our system has to treat us as numbers because we could never scale intelligence. Mm. We could never scale expertise. So yeah, like I said, that's some of the story behind that. Yeah, see, this is where this starts to get interesting because I, I think about this a lot in myself. So I can paint the nightmare scenario of somebody collapsing inside of themselves, having AI friends uh, instead of real friends and how quickly that can get distorted and become a real problem. And yet at the same time, I'm building exactly that. And the reason that I'm building that is because of the promise of AI and the incredible things that we can do as we begin to recognize more patterns and figure out, okay, where does this really go? So my wife had a tremendous uh, health bout. It's been a while now, thankfully, but at one point I was afraid she was going to die. Her Gosh, fingernails sorry. were breaking, her hair was falling out. She couldn't eat. It was just really, really, really bad. And it ends up being her microbiome, but of mm -hmm. course it took forever to diagnose that that was a problem. She was about to get... Um, immunotransglobulin transfusions. Yep. And I was just like, this is, I was like, something's wrong. I don't think this is the right answer. I don't, I don't want to do that. Let's stop. Let's try to figure this thing out. And so we pump the brakes. We start researching the microbiome, looking into that, testing things. And the thought of having AI to be able to say, okay, let's take genetic data and read the genetic database that's ever been collected, all of that. Yep. Let's look at all the different foods, responses, match all that together. And if you can get that level of pattern recognition, and now you can engage AI, I think she, because part of the problem is your microbiome is changing daily. It's probably changing hourly. And if you were able to track all of that and say, okay, with your genetics, with your current state of your microbiome, here's exactly what you should be eating. Maybe even with nutrients from food grown in that area. Like it really may be yep. that specific. And when you can find patterns in that sort of insane level of data, now you've really got something. And that's but one of the many areas where I think that this could be utterly transformational. Yeah, I mean, like right now, the AIs are know-it-alls. They can know it all graduates, but you have specialists. You'll have a nutritionist AI. You will have a microbiome AI. You will have a personal trainer AI. <laughs> like, why was Peloton successful? You know, attractive people shouting at you. You know, we can generate that now. <laughs> um, everyone suddenly gets that personalized to them. Mm. But more than that, it's not just the information being in this tiny model. You have retrieval augmented models and other things, which means these models now interact with existing data sets and knowledge sets. So you use something like Perplexity AI. It doesn't only answer your questions with GPT-4, it gives you references. So you can say, what about MAD? And it'll link to all of the things as it gives individual stuff. And this will only advance from here. So you can dig into as much depth as possible that you want with a whole team of people around you, even if you're by yourself. So you should never be alone again mm -hmm. in terms of you can be connected to people like you in the same problem as you. We can build better teams and all the information of the world is at your fingertips in a way that it was never before, including your own private information. So like one of my favorite apps, it does use some battery is Rewind AI. It takes a screenshot of your MacBook screen every time it changes and OCRs it. Hmm. And then it gives a timeline. So I can type in impact theory and it will look through everything that's ever been on my MacBook screen. It's all stored locally. 
and find where impact theory is on YouTube. Well, there's a picture of this mug and it shows it in a timeline so I can go back and I can see what I looked at before or after that. What? Wow. So you can map your own sort of connective trees with whatever. And what happens when you combine that with a language model? Everything you see on your screen stored locally with an open source language model, it creates the memex and it sees what you've paid more attention to versus less attention. Again, the dystopian versions of this, mm. I'm talking about the utopian version, which is ADD me, can finally remember what I was doing, what I was looking at, the context, the search tree as I was searching all these different things, clicking from place to place. Mm. And then you can set agents to go and recreate that journey and search all the other stuff that you didn't search. This is really positive because again, how much of our life is done searching for knowledge, searching for information that's relevant to us. Mm. Talk to me about the paper, Attention is All You Need. I've heard you and other people bring this up multiple times. I haven't read it, but this is like the big breakthrough. Yeah, this was the 2017 paper by the Google team, all of whom now left Google. Um, and basically what it was is that classical big data took big data and then Facebook extrapolated it so that when it found 17 pieces of information about you, it could target you with ads. That was a classical big data thing. Mm. They even create shadow profiles of you. So when you go on Facebook, they actually got a shadow profile that they then connect to your real profile. What's the shadow profile? Like, it's like, what if there was a Tom on YouTube on Facebook? Uh -huh. Because there's all these connections to this unknown person. <laughs> and then it just fills you in automatically. That's why it figures out your preferences so quickly without huh. listening to you. So attention is all you need said that not all data is important. You need to pay attention to what is important in a sentence. What's important in a time series, because that's the nature of being able to spot the tiger in the kind of thing. That was the missing part. And so the transformer architecture that came from that, and you have different architectures now, is what led to GPT-3 and others general purpose transformer. transformer architecture if what it's doing is pinpointing what's important why not important architecture or well kind of again attention is the mechanism that it does to kind of transform the information tokenize it and then figure out these latent spaces of meaning so are the tokens the important pieces the tokens are important. that's how you take a word and then you split it up into its constituent parts and then you try and figure out what the most important part of it by doing pattern analysis at ridiculous mm -hmm. scale so something like a gpt4 would use probably uh, from the kind of things on semi-analysis that have been leaked, if they're correct, it uses a supercomputer 50 times faster than NASA's fastest supercomputer for like three months. It uses like 20, 30 megawatts of electricity. Whoa. And 10 trillion words go into that and it figures out all the connections between them and what generally comes next. So what it does is just literally figures out what word comes next. And so this was a big breakthrough because what it meant is that you didn't have to have hugely complicated big data algorithms. You just needed to have very large compute to scale. And so compute went exponential, and then you just threw more and more GPUs at it, and it figured out more and more things. And as you scaled, it had more and more emergent properties, which surprised everyone. Do you know who John Nash is? Yeah. This, it sounds like that. So John Nash, he unfortunately was schizophrenic, but yeah. he was, uh, he's the guy from A Beautiful Mind for people that don't know, watch the movie, Russell Crowe, fantastic movie. And uh, at one, he obviously doesn't know he's schizophrenic. 
and he starts seeing patterns in everything. Yep. And it sounds like that, that this thing is, you know, whatever the human brain, whatever algorithms we have running that allows us to very quickly suss out what's important, um, that it's doing that, but at an extraordinary high level. And you have to remember, like, there's a saying, all intelligence is compression. You take everything you've listened to this, you only remember a few things. Mm. And the whole of computer science is based on information theory from Claude Shannon. And if I want to summarize it, information is valuable only if it changes a state or as much as it changes a state. So if listeners are listening to this and they don't take away anything, this is a useless thing, you know, or maybe they just put it on the radio because they like hearing your voice or something like that. Right. Um, but if they take something away from it, then it's valuable. You've had a good use of your time. So you start seeing patterns and everything. But one of the things that, again, people I think misunderstand with this technology is GPT-4 is not a program. Stable diffusion is not a program. It's a large amount of text, images, etc., where the output is a single file of ones and zeros. It's like a filter. You can recursively kind of put something through it, but it's just guessing the next word when you type a prompt. Even if the prompt is the whole of the Great Gatsby and the whole of Ulysses by James Joyce, and you're telling it to combine them together. Mm. It then pushes it through that sieve, that filter, and the output is something that combines them both together. Single files. We've never seen anything like this before. Probably the closest thing probably listeners would have heard to this is a codec. Where with music and things like that, we had these audio codecs that you had one file type and another file type, and you had this single file that translated between them. Was that, uh, is that compression or is that recognizing this thing in that format would look like this? So again, this is compression of intelligence is what it is. So again, it's like a translator function. These, mm. these are universal translators for context. And so you push it through the sieve and then stuff comes out where it's predicting the next word or it's denoising uh, kind of a pixel to achieve that because you're just passing it through this sieve again and again and again. Yeah, it's, uh, I unfortunately don't understand it by first principles, but I get it by analogy. Um, you're feeding it so much data, it's recognizing the patterns in interconnectedness, that data, yeah. And it's able to say, okay, this is the like, um, all right, this is written in the style of Stephen King. This is written in the style of Hemingway. So even though they're using the same language, their vast majority yeah, of the words it, are going to overlap, but there's different patterns, rhythms, even it, different uh, subject matter presented in a different way, tone. Except for the fact that it's not actively doing that. It's like a mega sieve. And depending on the words that you put in, the words that come out are different. <laughs> hmm. So it's literally the, a... Is the sieve the prompt of write it in the style of Stephen King? That's what goes into the sieve. It goes into the filter. So what is the filter? The filter is this compressed knowledge. The principles. The principles. Because it's not actually compressed knowledge, right? Yes. It's principles. principles. Yes, it's principles. So it would be like a really good book of principles. Mm -hmm. uh, except for it's compressed way beyond a book ever was. Because a book is a compression of information. And that's why it can kind of do this. Because it looks at books, it looks at articles, and they're all compressions of information. To write an article is a huge endeavor that then comes out with something where they're trying to convey a few things. A book is an even larger endeavor. And so again... It's very difficult to wrap your head around. Uh, like even for me, like you have a file, and it can do all these things, versus these gigantic computer server farms with programs and logic of ones and zeros. 
there's no program here. Yeah, and it's important for people to understand that even, so first of all, the AI scientists that are building these things do not understand how this all works. And even if you ask ChatGPT4 GPT to explain how it works, it doesn't know. It doesn't, no one's quite sure exactly how we're getting all these emergent properties. Mm. And it's constantly surprising, like, oh, now it can add, you know? And then you start tying it together. So it goes through this file multiple times. It becomes, it shows more and more kind of agentic activity. In fact, the next step of this, and this is what OpenAI and Google are both doing, is there was this uh, thing called AlphaGo. There's an amazing documentary where Google's DeepMind division created an AI to beat humans in the game of AlphaGo, or, or Go. So Go is like chess, except for there's almost a myriad infinite number of potential moves, so you can't calculate them. Like you can't brute force it like Deep Blue do with Kasparov. So instead it learned to play against itself. It's something called Monte Carlo Tree Simulation, where it learns different principles, dreams. Again, an amazing documentary on YouTube about this. And it beat Lisa Doll, who was a ninth down player, one of the best in the world, far beyond everyone else, the Magnus Carlsen of Go 7-1. What they're doing now is they're combining those models with these language models to make them agentic. So models that can plot and plan and other things with language models that can predict what's next to create things that really understand context even better. Okay, so I understand enough about how the AlphaGo system works. Uh, I want to understand this. So AlphaGo is going to play against itself. So you give it the rules of Go, you give it the objective, and then you set it loose and it just plays and plays and plays and plays and plays and it plays against itself. Uh, and then I know at one point they, because they, uh, Lisa Dahl, if I remember correctly, was the number two player and people thought, well, first of all, you're never going to beat him. And they did, but they couldn't beat the number one player. And then they created another variation and it played against AlphaGo and then it ended up smashing. It was Mu Zero, I think, came after AlphaGo. Okay. So how do you get a language model where there is no objectively right answer unless you're doing trivia, how do you, how do you get it to know what the reward is? How do you get the quote unquote right answer? Much of this now is about reward functions. So GPT-4, when it comes out of the box, maybe we're getting a bit too into the weeds, is a pre-trained model in the giant supercomputer. Yep. Then we use reinforcement And just learning. so everybody knows, pre-trained model means principles. Yeah, principles. Take all this knowledge, all these words, squish it down into a file. And then run it on a computer that's literally set up like a brain where there's like a bunch of neurons and they're interconnected. Yeah, these are the tensor cores on the NVIDIA GPUs. Yep. And so mimicking the brain on your little 4090, it has AI chips right baked in there. For anybody that wants to know, they kick off so much heat, you can see it from space. Yeah, I mean, like, I think our supercomputers are like 10 megawatts of electricity. Each one of these cards uses 700 watts. yeah. Utterly fascinating to me. So anyway, All clean energy, by the way, for our ones. For anyone who asks. So what you've got is when it came out, they took six months to make it human because they trained it on like, I don't know, all of YouTube and the whole internet obviously would turn out a bit weird. And so you have a reward function through something called RLHF, reinforcement learning with human feedback, where you give an objective function to say, don't answer questions about how to make napalm. (laughs) And the, the objective function technically is please your human overlord. Please your human overlord. Got it. And so much of this alignment question is focused on taking these big models and trying to make them so they won't kill us some way or say bad things for a given definition of bad mm-hmm. things. Um, like my one of my takes on alignment and you know is like we should have better data sets. We should move away from web crawls. Can you? Uh, yeah, it's very, I want to ask you about yeah. that. But explain to people exactly 
what alignment is aligned with what? Aligned alignment, you know, this is a cool thing of Anthropic. There was a great New York Times piece on them recently and others is if we build an AI that outperforms humans and is more capable than us, because it might not just be a single file, it might be a thousand different AIs all working in different ways. So you've got your like AlphaGo type AI and this, yeah, a swarm. Because, you know, humans are swarms, our organizations are swarms that are highly specialized, right? Mm. Might be a million AIs. How do we make sure it doesn't kill us? Or how does it make sure it doesn't enslave us? Or how does it make sure that it doesn't give us eternal suffering? Also lame. Yeah, this will be kind of sucky. How do you make sure it's aligned with human interests? And so this is an unsolved problem. OpenAI have announced they're putting 20% of their compute to try and solve this. You know, Anthropic was set up to do this. Although I believe that the only answer they've come up with is let's build an AGI first, an artificial general intelligence, that will then stop all other AGIs from coming. Mm. Which is kind of scary, uh, to say the least. Why do they think that that would work? Like that seems... So Elon Musk has likened AI to a demon summoning circle and we're all just hoping that the demon that comes forth is going to be kind, but we don't know. We don't know. In OpenAI's own words in their Road to AGI post, they say this could be an existential threat and wipe out humanity and democracy and capitalism. But if we don't do it, someone else will. This is part of the unpleasant race condition. Again, it gets the headlines. I think it'll probably be okay. But with the way we're going right now, you're going to go from two companies being able to build this technology, or maybe three, including Anthropic, to 20 or 30 in a year or two. And what's the odds that they all do it properly? and align this technology properly, I think it's pretty low. What's the odds that if we train it on the whole internet, including the whole of YouTube, because we don't have enough tokens, not enough words to feed into it, that it'll turn out a bit weird, very high. So it took six months to tune it to being a human GPT-4. And then Kevin Ruse of the New York Times is like, hey, how you doing? It's like, leave your wife and come and join me. Whoa. You know, it's like, oh, what? (laughs) Bing came out a bit weird when it first kind of had GPT-4 in it. Because, again, we feed it crap, we're going to get a slightly weirdness. Now it's got a lot better, but it's lost a lot of its personality because you've been tuning it back to human preferences. You've been doing this reinforcement learning with the objective function of don't offend anyone. It's quite hard to get GPT-4 to be offensive now. But there are these two phases of this technology. I think with better data, we can have more aligned models. I think with better data and national data, we can have more representative models because you'll never have technology that's not biased. So the only question is, Why? who's bias? Well, because you have to build it in a certain way. Like, even though it understands all the context, like, right now, these models are trained on the whole internet, which is largely a Western artifact. Mm. Yeah, largely trained in English. How much do you worry about bias? Are you more worried about bias or alignment? I'm more worried about alignment, I think. I think this is one of the reasons that we release open models, so you can see how the cookie is made. Like, we're the only company that offers opt-out of data sets. Literally the only AI company in the world. It's so if I'm crazy. an artist and I don't want you training on my art, I can back out. Had 167 million images opted out of our data set, yeah. We're the only company in the world that does that, which I find kind of insane. Um, so my thing is open auditable, which means that you can tune your own culture into these models. We're helping multiple nations build national models with their broadcaster data that then can represent that. And, you know, try to address some of this inherent bias within the data sets. Algorithmic bias has been an issue that affects real world and it'll affect more and more of the real world as you get into these models because we will outsource more and more of our minds to them. Because again, like when you've got a small subset of people will outsource their mind to it. So in the near term, I'm way more worried about bias. In the long term, I bias is not going to lead to an existential threat. Yes. But alignment can. 
But let's talk about bias for a second. So I I am very uneasy about how rapidly bias finds its way into this stuff. And that becomes another, so if let's say that we all get our individual AI and it's, you get yours young and it's your primary education tool and it's biased as the day is long, now you run into real issues because at a time of optimal malleability, you're programming a kid's mind with something that's super biased. Yeah, I mean, like what do you have the little AI of Xi, right? Which is a little tiny Xi Jinping that grows up and tells you how great Xi Jinping is. Lovely. Well, that's biased, but that's inevitable. They already have it as an app that actually tracks Seriously? your eyes. Yeah. What? Well, it's not an AI, but they have the little app of G. It's this like, little book where it actually tracks your eyes for attention. Like, are you actually looking at this? Does this feed into the credit score? I'm not sure if it's being hooked up, but of course it will be. <laughs> Why wouldn't you? This is so scary. Trying. So look, I thought, you know, we, we were on the happy part. Now we're back to, uh, to that. But, but that's the- really terrifying. And when you have a state that is not interested in any individual. You've got the collective. Yeah. So I don't know if this is true, but I saw a headline that said, in China now, the phone will alert you if somebody with a lower social credit score than you is calling you. And it warns you, if you answer this call, it will lower your credit score. It's effective, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, even if it isn't true, again, it fits the objective function of perpetuating that particular system, which is not necessarily our system, but systems around the world shift. Mm-hmm. So this is why you have an inherent bias. Whose bias is it? Who's the one who creates the AI nanny? And is this what why bi- you're doing things regionally? Well, this is why I'm doing things regionally, but also allowing people to own their own models so the objective function of the model can be that. Like in Web3, there was the saying, not your keys, not your crypto. So my saying is, not your models, not your mind. Because I do think we'll outsource more and more of our cognitive capability to this. It will be our co-pilot for life. If someone else is making that model and deciding on things, what's going to happen? Like the UAE had this model Falcon. It was a big open source model and they were like, wow, it was actually light on from France who were behind it, but let's leave that to one side. You ask it about the UAE and human rights, it's like, this is a wonderful place full of fantastic things. You ask it about Qatar or Saudi, it's not so nice. Mm. Who's embedding these inherent biases in these models, right? Whose model are you using? And these can be very insidious, the biases, right? You won't pick up on them, but you hear it again and again and again because... Is your nanny a conservative Republican or is she a libertarian or things like that? You will be influenced by that if you grow up with them or Massively. even if you're using it day to day. Just the way it's speaking, the way it's thinking, mm. the way it's recommending stuff, which goes far beyond a Google Maps or something like that. Crazy. All right. So that we don't get lost back down the dark rabbit hole. Dark what rabbit is the hole. coolest thing that you see AI doing? I know you're building a lot of different companies leveraging this technology to do amazing things. What What are some of the coolest? So we're doing one company at the moment, which is just let's go. The mission is to create the building blocks to activate humanity's potential. So the building block what? Our mission is to create the building blocks to activate humanity's potential. Building block stack. Okay. So every single modality, image, audio, video, 3D, language sectoral variants and national variants. You've got like this grid that you can pick and you're like, I'm an Hindi investment banker. I transform my private data into a chat GPT type thing. That's just training my private data. Or I'm a Vietnamese illustrator. I want a Vietnamese cultural kind of image model or something like that. And then you can bring your own stuff to it. That's Mm -hmm. kind of my goal, which is to enable other people to build on top of what we're building, like a layer one for AI effectively, but open models for private data. 
Whereas the other side is proprietary models where you only be able to send a certain amount of data. Like government's not going to run on black boxes. Education, healthcare, you will need to own your own AI. So the coolest thing I've seen is just the promise of personalized education. There is nothing that's been proven to work in education except for probably the Bloom effect, two sigma improvement, which is one-on-one tuition. But even here in you know the affluent America, education system's not good. What is education optimized for? It's like a social status game mixed with a Petri dish mixed with childcare, realistically. Like very few people are happy with their schooling because what are we trying to optimize for? You give a one-to-one tutor that can find out if you're dyslexic, an audio learner, a video learner, visual learner, or otherwise, and they're just constantly adapting to you and bringing you information at your level. Dude, I want to get that. Is the most transforming thing ever. Is anybody doing this already? So, you know, with um, kind of charity that would support Imagine World Ride, run my co-founder, he's been deploying adaptive learning tablets into refugee camps around the world with the Global X Prize for Learning winner, mm. 1 billion on them. Teaching kids literacy and numeracy, 76% of them in refugee camps in 13 months and one hour a day. Now the goal is to bring language models to all these kids. And you have an AI that teaches a kid and learns from it. And then that data can feed a better AI. You create a lovely system that's just learning and adapting. And a kid in Mogadishu is like a kid in Manhattan. It's like a kid in, you know, London. Once you have a generalized learning AI, you can really proliferate that around the world to customize. What do you think this does to education? Because this is very interesting. Like, okay, now I'm just spitballing here. But uh, let's say that I... I want to homeschool my kid. I would never do that in a million years because I don't want to turn into a teacher. So, but if I could perform just the sort of babysitting function and I give my kid a tablet that has an AI that knows exactly what I'm trying to optimize for either for this year or for the next 12 years or whatever, and it then calibrates to my kid, knows what they're good at, how they learn, and then knows how long they're engaged, when they're distracted. You know, you, now I want the little Gigi uh, the Gigi, thing that's yeah. like reading their eyes. Where are they looking? What are they doing? And I know that there are like certain frequency things you can do where it's like, oh, if I hit them with this piece of knowledge, they're not sharp at this yet. So I need to hit them with it every yeah. 27 minute increment or whatever. Or a variable reward schedule exactly. or whatever. Exactly. You will transform education, but you can How also far make are it we from that? a couple of years. Again, what happens if you have a thousand GPT-4s? You'll get there. Mm. No, it's just, again, we're just right now, we've got the building blocks, but we haven't got the design patterns. The stuff right now is literally iPhone 2G. We're just getting to the app store stage, copy paste. And so that's the biggest transformative change because how much would you pay for your kid to have an optimal education? How much would I pay for that? I would pay for that right now. Right now. So do we have the technology to do it? Yes. Does it take time to build it properly? Yes. How long does it take a year or two? And so this is the biggest transformation we've ever seen for education. Again, Jesus human flourishing, flourishing. Because that can also bring you the information about autism or multiple sclerosis or mm. the best filmmaking techniques. Again, everyone's thinking one-on-one. You should think one to a thousand, and then you optimize the thousand. You get rid of all their general knowledge. You make them specific. What do you mean by that? Say that in a different so way. So GPT-4 knows everything. Mm-hmm. You can ask it about like the most obscure things. Does it need all that knowledge? No. You've bulked, now you have to cut. And then you have a specialist model for calculus. That knows so I actually have different teachers. Different teachers and then a teacher that basically brings these teachers together and tells them, yeah, this is what Tom's like. You know, He's a bit cranky in the mornings, but then he wakes up in the afternoon. Because even in the best schools, a teacher has one to 20 attention for all the kids. 
you'll have a whole bunch of AIs for you and for mm. your kids. And again, are you a visual learner or are you an auditory learner? Do you have dyslexia? Can our system at the moment adapt to that? No, no way. Can the system that I've described adapt to that? Instantly. Do we have the technology for that? Yes. Is it going to happen? Yes. This is the thing. It's a call and answer show now. I love but, this. But then, if you're homeschooling your kid, do you want the kid to be by himself? What if you had 10 kids together mm-hmm. and the AIs were encouraging them to interact with each other in a positive way and build stuff together and share knowledge? Older kids teaching younger kids, leveraging the technology, adapting the technology, understanding the technology. That's super powerful. It's not necessarily everyone in their own little worlds, right? Because we can use this AI to bring people together in an efficient manner. We can because there's nothing like human connection, right? That's always a concern about homeschooling and things like that. That's mm-hmm. why school has a pro-social component. But then the nature of a teacher changes. The nature of a doctor changes. And that's why I think education and healthcare are the biggest disruptions because you have something brand new, especially when the AI is more empathetic than a normal doctor. Mm. doesn't tell me the AI is super empathetic. It tells me doctors should probably be more empathetic. But most of the doctors I know kind of hate their patients. Interesting. Well, because, you know, how many teachers are happy? How many doctors are happy? Right. Oh, I get why teachers would hate their patients. Patients. Yeah. That is very interesting, man. So, okay, there's two things that I want to talk about here. One, as we Im- get embodied, I want to know what that does. So actual robots for people to think that's yeah. off in the distance. You are not watching enough YouTube videos. No, no. Uh, because between Boston Dynamics and Elon Musk's, uh, what's it called? Uh, Primus? Yeah. Optimus. Optimus. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, it is very close. You have, uh, Boston Dynamics has robots that can do parkour. Yeah. It's insane. There's uh, Elodie and there's a whole bunch of others as well. They're catching up fast. Working to be confident and freaking badass can be very difficult. Now, I get it, guys. I get it. Kicking ass and taking names takes energy. But when it comes to micronutrients, you're like, wait, how much vitamin B do I need? It can be a daily freaking struggle to figure out and meet that perfect nutrition balance that you need to feel strong, focused and energize which of course are all the things you need to become a freaking confident badass so it's time to arm your body with every nutrient it absolutely deserves with ag1 now if you're a long-time listener you might know that i've actually been supporting ag1 for many years now and that's because ag1 is a foundational nutrition supplement that supports your body's universal needs like gut optimization stress management and immune support. Since 2010, AG1 has led the future of foundational nutrition, continuously refining their formula to create a smarter, better way to elevate your baseline health. So if you want to take ownership of your life, that actually means you have to take ownership over your health. And it all starts, guys, with AG1. So guys, go and try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go now to drinkag1.com slash Lisa. That's drinkag1.com slash Lisa. Go check it out. What's up, guys? If there's something going on with your body that you just can't quite figure out what it's coming from, I'm going to bet that the problem has something to do with your gut health. So what can you do to feel better? Well, everybody's body is different, and that's why our sponsor, Viome, uses an at-home gut intelligence test to analyze your microbiome. 
Then they provide you with a personalized pre and probiotic formula that can help restore balance to your body. They also recommend what foods you should eat and which ones you shouldn't eat based on your test results. I've had the founder of Viome, Naveen Jain, on the show several times, and he always has incredible updates about the science linking your microbiome to the rest of your health. And as you guys know, with everything that Lisa went through, we know firsthand that your gut health, if you fix that, you're going to solve so many other problems in your life. Go to tryviome.com slash impact and use code impact to get 20% off your first three months and free shipping. All right, that's T-R-Y-V-I-O-M-E.com slash impact with the code impact for 20% off your first three months and free shipping.